0: Hey, welcome back, everybody. Thanks for being with us on a Tuesday as we continue through the book of Exodus. It's uh, good that you would continue to join us. We're grateful for that as we look at the scripture together. Uh, we are making our way through the last part of chapter one. Just a quick recap. Yesterday, we saw the Pharaoh try to take matters into his own hands in regard to the Israelites. He pulled aside two of the Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Puah, and he commanded them to take the lives of the children, the male children that were born to the Hebrew women. They did not do that. They um, said that they feared God instead, or that's what the text tells us. They don't tell the Pharaoh that. They simply don't follow the order. So in the next um, part of the passage here, we see them called to account for that. So let me start reading with verse 18, then we'll get into it. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, allowing the boys to live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives and the people, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So stop there. Um you know, so we see the continuation of the story from yesterday. The Pharaoh is upset he he becomes apparent it becomes obvious to him that these two women are not following orders. There are male babies being born, and so he calls them to account and notice that their story um and 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 generally, I mean, I think probably in the in the narrative, this is a deceptive story that they're probably giving an explanation. But notice that there are elements of truth to it that have tied with everything we've learned about the Hebrews so far. They're they're vigorous. They give birth before we get to them. They're not like the Egyptian women. They're strong. They're resilient. They multiply. We've seen all of these things woven throughout this first chapter. And it it all kind of reinforces that idea, Michael, that, that these are a strong, hardy people, and we continue that theme.
1: Yeah, right. And ultimately, we do, I think, Clint, see the celebration a little bit of the schemer here, which we Mm -hmm. pointed out in Genesis. Here, once again, we have these two women who are, and I think you're right to point out, it's not as if they're just point blank lying necessarily. There is a sense in which I think we are to believe that the Hebrew women are indeed blessed and vigorous and strong and hardy. I think that's a statement that's intended to be fact, but they're also pulling a fast one on Pharaoh here. I mean, they are certainly making a claim that doesn't fully encompass the truth. They are not doing what they were told to do, and here they have a scheme uh, to pull it over on him. And it's working. In fact, it's working so well. Clint, I want to point out the text says that, that they continue to mm-hmm. multiply. That word we've seen multiple times already in Exodus. Of course, we saw that written all throughout Genesis. Uh, this theme that the one whom God blesses will continue to multiply and grow, and that very promise that started with God's promise to Abram and then Abraham is the very promise that God continues to keep, even as, I want to just make it clear, Pharaoh continues to ratchet up the temperature. I mean, he, he continues to tighten the nuts, and he's making things harder for the people, and it really is this act of defiance by these midwives um, that is making it possible uh, for God to continue to do uh, this work and so it's just worth pointing out um, that it's a it's an interesting combination here Clint between these women's faith which God by the way blesses them for and also God's providential care of these strong uh, multiplying people it's it's the Joint work of them both, which is resulting in the people of Israel continuing to grow and prosper, even in the midst of adversity.
0: Yeah, and notice it—it it says that the people became not only strong, but very strong. We, we've seen this throughout this chapter: the, the continued um, growth, the continued strength, the continued resilience of the people. Um, and I think you know that that's very interesting. I, if there are characters that it would be fun to know more about. In the scripture, Michael, these are two that I think I would put on my list. I would, I, I, wish we had more backstory about Shipra and Pua. Do they, are they afraid of the Pharaoh? Do they simply say, no, we're not doing that. And when he asks, they say, look, we, they're, they're fast. We can't get to them. Um, is there, you know, I, I, I would love to know more about the character of these two women who stand up, um, really with no power of their own and, do the right thing. Do the godly thing. And then, you know, the, the book of Exodus, uh, this is language that sometimes makes us uncomfortable, the idea that uh, God rewards or punishes. But that is, if, if those themes make you uncomfortable, this is the wrong book. That That is woven deeply into this narrative because they feared God. God gave them families. And we we saw some of that language in Genesis, the idea that God was um, an overseer of procreation. We saw that theme of barrenness and life over and over and over again. And in a different way, we continue to see it here, life and death in the balance. And because these women do the right thing, the courageous thing, because they take this stand and refuse to give in to evil and power— they are, they are blessed, and the blessing comes in the form of families, which is a very interesting, I think. Not, not in the way of riches, not in the way of power, not in the way of a name. They're blessed with family, um, which I, is profound. I think, you know, a very interesting way to talk about what God, um, how God responds to their faithfulness.
1: You know, sometimes small details can really transform our readings of the uh, scriptures. And uh, maybe an example of that here is uh, one of my commentaries pointed out that there is some scholarly debate over whether these two midwives are Hebrew women or they're Mm -hmm. simply midwives to the Hebrew women, that Mm -hmm. they could potentially be Egyptian women doing this task. And... I'm not going to land on either side of that. I just want to point out uh, how interesting that detail would be to shaping how you read the story, because imagine with me for just a moment, say that they are indeed Egyptian women serving as midwives to the Hebrew women. In that case, they're actually resisting their own national leader for the sake of doing good, and the Lord blessing them would be the Lord blessing them with families uh, as the opposing side. In other words, even as God was blessing the Israelites to be strong, uh, there would be a sense in which God would be blessing these outsiders as well for their part in his uh, His providential work, which, uh, once again, Clint, I'm not taking sides on that, yeah. but I'm just saying, you know, sometimes those are small but yet really shaping and in interesting details in a story like this.
0: That's an interesting insight, Michael, and, and one that ultimately is probably not Supremely important in the text,
1: yeah. but
0: this book is full of some of those things. Moses himself, in the next chapter, we're going to see, lives at this juncture of am I Hebrew, am I Egyptian, uh, and so that kind of that kind of intersection would be interesting. Ultimately, we don't know that the names are ambiguous enough that it's not clear in the translation, but it's an interesting potential twist to the story. Well, that brings us to the last verse of this chapter. And um I, I'm going to read it and then we'll make a case for what it does or doesn't mean. So, then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. So, uh, this is a fascinating verse uh at at a lot of levels. So at one level, you have now the pharaoh who doesn't give up on this idea of bringing death to the male children of the Hebrews, and he now co-ops the entire nation of, of Egypt. He makes the Hebrews the enemy of his own people. He gives them an order. Uh, again, he stands as supreme authority in this society. He has the, the power to punish he has the power to um, to jail, to execute. You know, there's not this is not a fair system. He is the holder of control and power here, and he commands his people. And from a societal standpoint, very interesting that when evil starts at the top, it works its way down. You know that we could have some conversations about. Uh, genocides that we see throughout the world, or or something like the Holocaust, in the way in which a leader's attitudes can poison an entire people group, and um, to make them agents of this destruction. And we don't get told a lot of the details, Michael. We can talk about that in a minute, but it, it is given what we see in the next chapter. It is very naive, I think, to say that they don't go along with it. that unlike the mm-hmm. midwives, it would seem as though that becomes actually a common practice in the in the nation of Israel or of Egypt. I'm sorry. Now,
1: that's hard for us maybe to wrap our mind around. at least I hope it is. I hope that's hard for us to grapple with that. But Clint, the reality is, The people here are cast as being a threat to the power and structure of Egypt, and so the pharaoh does what authoritarian leaders have done throughout history, and that is take the steps that they think are the most necessary to hold on to their power. The question here is, to what extent does this implicate the entire culture? Um, That's an important question, actually, as we move further into this text, because we've already alluded to this, and if you know the story of the plagues and you know how that's going to end, you know that uh, there's going to be some very dark times for Egypt, both literally and physically and metaphorically, that there's going to be substantial judgment cast their way. And Clint, the reality that it may be possible that the common Egyptian was part of this horrific act that they were essentially taking part in the in the task of trying to subvert not only the people's ability to have uh, male sons you know human life but they were also setting themselves as a nation as a people a common people against the God of Israel against the one who promised to multiply the people and if you know anything about Genesis and now coming into Exodus the the one sign Uh, That you've crossed the line is when you're on the other side of God's intention. When when you've crossed over and you're now seeking to stop the thing that God has committed to do, uh, you're now a blockade that's going to get run over. I mean, you're not going to hold back the energy that's coming your way. And that's certainly going to be the case as this story continues. But I I just want to point out, I think when it says, Pharaoh commanded all his people— Exodus here is casting a wide, wide net clint, and I don't think that's on accident. I think the point is going to come back as the story continues,
0: yeah, i I think the book of Exodus tends to side against the Egyptian people in general, specifically against the Pharaoh for certain. But to some extent, the the people are held accountable. As well, if you are writing this into, you know, some kind of a novel, you could imagine that there were Egyptians that didn't do this act, but you can also imagine that there were others who probably bought into it and, um, pursued it aggressively and, and, you know, took it upon themselves to enforce this edict. And, um, you know, it, it's really interesting, Michael, this, this, is just dropped there. I mean, this horrific idea that one people is going to throw another people's children in the river is just left there. We're we're not told anymore about it. We don't get details about how it happened, when it happened. Uh, I think, you know, again, I think the next story makes it clear that it does happen. It is connected. But I think a case can be made. This is the last time we see the people of Israel, the Hebrews, referred to as strong, as vibrant, as uh, as multiplying, as resilient. The next time we see them, they are a broken people. Now there will be have have passed a significant amount of time, but I think a case can be made that. That it is this act, it is the loss of their children, it is the, the reality of their powerlessness in the face of this kind of evil that ultimately is the thing that sort of removes from them th- their hardiness and leaves them broken, leaves them afraid, leaves them you know full of fear and, and a struggle to be faithful. I, I think it's... I think it's very interesting, though we're not told much of the details of the aftermath of this decision, the next time we meet the Hebrews as a people,
1: mm-hmm. they
0: are um, they are the exact opposite of everything we've learned about them so far in the story.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting, Clint. I have not thought of it in that way before. Uh, generally, when I've thought of the Exodus story, I've thought of that fulcrum point when they go through the Red Sea. Uh, the moment in which God delivers them, there is, in a sense, a real fulcrum point here in that uh, it's striking in the entire first chapter, the people aren't described as complaining a single time, though they have much reason to. Uh, In fact, they stand up and they they really – um, they push back against the injustice. Uh, later in the book of Exodus, there is no shortage of words describing the people's complaint and frustration. Um, maybe that's just a narrative thing, uh, but there may be a sense in which, like you're saying, uh, we look at this and see that in some ways Pharaoh accomplished what he was seeking to do. I mean, in some ways, he he uh, violently disrupted the multiplication of the people and the only way that they would get out of the rut uh, that he puts them in, uh, the prison that he uh, puts around them, is for them ultimately to trust God and for him to bring who would be a pretty unlikely hero into the mix.
0: Yeah, it's it's certainly a matter of degree, but it is, it is one thing to be oppressed and forced into labor. It is another to have one's offspring taken from them and the promise of future And the idea of uh, sons—that I mean, to some extent, that really is to remove their humanity from them. Um, And I, I, you know, again, the the Bible doesn't really get into those things philosophically or psychologically. But uh, in my mind, I I think this is the thing that fundamentally changes who and how these people are. Um, I think for me, at least this is the primary explanation of what we see in the rest of the book. Um, or at least I wonder if it
1: is, I I don't know about you. There's a sense in which it feels like we've covered a lot of ground already and we've only been through one chapter. Um, and believe it or not, this context all matters. It sets the stage, uh, but now it's time to really gain some momentum. So don't miss tomorrow because uh, we're going to be really pushing towards, uh, Introducing some of the fundamental people uh, for the rest of the book. So don't miss it.
0: Yeah. Thanks for being with us.